If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're looking for the perfect Christmas gift, why not take out a subscription to BBC History magazine for just $34.99? That's a saving of over 50% on the shop price. A subscription is a present that can be enjoyed all year round and every issue will be delivered direct to their door. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, visit our official online store at buysubscriptions.com forward slash history2020. If you're based in the US or Canada, you can subscribe for just $55. To find out more and for all of the countries, head to buysubscriptions.com forward slash history2020. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's podcast, we have a lecture from our 2019 History Weekend event in Chester. This lecture comes from the Egyptologist Chris Norton, based on his book, Searching for the Lost Tombs of Egypt, in which Chris talks about some of the most fascinating ancient figures whose tombs are yet to be discovered, including Alexander the Great, Nefertiti and Cleopatra, and asks, will their burial places ever be found? Thank you very much for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. I don't often get to speak uh, about anything to anybody in a space as nice as this. So uh, this is already a great pleasure for me. Um, I'm going to be speaking today about the subject of my last book, Searching for the Lost Tombs of Egypt. I'm not sure I've got all the answers, um, but uh, I I want at least to raise a few questions and throw a little, um, a few possibilities your way maybe. Um, The aim of the book really was to get people thinking about what's possible and what's been done and what might yet be to come for archaeologists in Egypt. So um, today uh, I'm trying to cram as much as I can of of this book into the next 45 minutes or so. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about how the book came about, what the reasons behind writing a book uh, like this were, um, to give you a kind of overview um, of um, the main stories that I tell in the book. And stories is an appropriate word, I think. Um, and then we're going to focus on one 
case study in, in some detail. So, story starts with uh, this question. Um, and this is a question that um, those of us uh, in Egyptology get asked quite a lot, I think. Um, is there anything left to find in Egypt? The kind of underlying presumption here is that after a couple of centuries worth of pretty frantic excavation um, and uncovering of um, thousands, probably millions of um, ancient Egyptian artifacts that have survived and are now scattered around the world in museum collections, private collections, and of course many, many thousands of them still in Egypt um, on the ground. Is there anything left to find? And um, I got this question, uh, I mean, as I say, I, mean, I get this question quite often, but there's one poor unfortunate so-and-so who asked me this one day uh, online, probably expecting a no or something not much more than that as an answer. Uh, and um, I got uh, probably more enthusiastic about this than he was expecting. The answer is yes. Um, and in fact, there's quite a lot to say uh, about this. Things are being discovered all the time in Egypt, actually. If you keep your eye on the news, particularly in the last probably three or four years now, since the Ministry of Antiquities has um, begun regularly issuing press releases and, and, and become much more savvy about talking to the media about things that are being discovered, there's been a steady stream of widely reported discoveries of new material. Um, so uh, this uh, announcement was made only... Uh, a week ago, um, a press conference was held in Luxor. I was lucky enough to be there myself. Um, this relates to the discovery of, so far, at least 30 extremely well-preserved coffins, it seems, of the early 22nd dynasty, uh, something like about 900 BC, so very nearly 3,000 years old. They're all in very good condition. Um, they are all... Um, they all still contain the mummies, as far as, far as we can tell, we can tell um, not, not ravaged in any way. Uh, so the, the mummy's well protected inside and probably concealing various uh, items. We don't yet know an awful lot about this discovery, but I mean, as you can see, just from uh, what was on display at the press conference the other day, there's an awful lot of, um, of new material for archaeologists to get their teeth into here. And a matter of, I think it was uh, about nine days before this, um, we had the announcement that an industrial area was found in the Valley of the Monkeys, the so-called Valley of the Monkeys. This is also sometimes known as the Western Valley, a, a branch of the Valley of the Kings. So um, Valley of the Monkeys is perhaps a little bit misleading. We are talking about new material being discovered in the Valley of the Kings, um, including um, some evidence of uh, items which probably were used in uh, the preparation of uh, coffins for royals and keep your eye on the chevron shaped uh, these are precious inlays which would have been set into uh, probably probably gold gold wood gilded wood um, in the coffins of royals as I say keep your eyes on these because these are going to come back later in the talk um, this has all just been announced like I say in the last couple of weeks and uh, a little bit earlier we had the announcement of a newly discovered pyramid, which turned out to contain the ransacked, unfortunately, burial of probably a princess of the 13th dynasty. So in this case, we're talking about something like 4,000 years ago. This is a princess whose existence we didn't know about before. We didn't certainly didn't know anything about the existence of the pyramid. Um, and yet it turned up in, in fact, early 2017 as a result of some illegal quarrying at a site which is well known as a royal cemetery. Um, which just gives you a sense, I think, of, of the extent to which even somewhere where lots and lots of digging has been done, there are still entire pyramids um, out there waiting for us. Um, lastly, of this small selection of uh, discoveries that I want to talk about just in, the, in this lecture, this um, sarcophagus 
turned up in Alexandria um, in the summer of 2018, last year, um, uh, monumental, uh, of the kind of size and type that we find at the end of the dynastic period, um, around about the time of the second Persian invasion of Egypt, and also at around about the same time as Alexander the Great arrived in the country. I was quite surprised that there weren't more people speculating about whether or not this might be something to do with the burial of Alexander the Great, um, whose story is one that I tell in the book. Um, I never thought this was, um, but I, like I say, I'm surprised that there wasn't more speculation about it. Um, it was opened, it was, it was thought to be intact because the mortar sealing the, uh, the box and the lid it still appeared to be in place. So it was thought to be intact, but unfortunately <laughs> the lid was quickly taken off and it was found to be full of sewage. You may remember that. Um, there were the bodies of three individuals in there, some tiny little bits and bobs of cultural items, but everything was a, a horrible mess. The um, sarcophagus is uninscribed as well, so we don't know who these people were. Um, so there's not much for us to say about the burial. But again, I think the important point here is that there are still things underneath the ground that we haven't yet found. Alexandria is an important uh, place, incidentally, because it's the starting point for any search for the tombs of uh, the royal house from the time of Alexander the Great onwards. So that's the Ptolemies, the line concluding with Cleopatra, famous Cleopatra. Um, this is a site which is extremely difficult to excavate, extremely difficult to get at archaeological material because it's all underneath the modern city, which um, mostly sprang up in the second half of the 19th century before much digging had really been done there. So the chances are there's a lot more of this kind of stuff underneath the ground. So, is there anything left to find in Egypt? Well, yes, clearly, since I got that question a few years ago, um, an awful lot has been discovered and widely reported. This is all great. But perhaps the question was really not just is there anything at all left to find, but are we likely to find anything as spectacular uh, as the discovery made in 1922 by Howard Carter, the tomb of Tutankhamun, which is the, the archaeological discovery to end all archaeological discoveries. It's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, the, it's the way it's, it's captured the public imagination. It's kind of set the, the bar, if you like, for archaeological <laughs> discoveries. An intact tomb of a pharaoh um, containing 5,000 plus items, all of them of the very highest quality in terms of the standards of craftsmanship. Uh, and the materials they were, they were made from. It just could not have got any better than this for any archeologist. And I suspect Carter was rather overwhelmed <laughs> by the whole thing, but he did a fabulous job of documenting everything. And those objects are now uh, mostly in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo, some of them making their way to the new Grand Egyptian Museum and some of them on tour. So is there anything left to find in Egypt? You probably already know the answer now. Um, what I had in mind, when I got this question, when I was thinking that, yes, there is, it's not just yes, there is, but actually, I thought, quite quickly, it occurred to me that there were at least a half a dozen tombs, and tombs tend to be the kinds of monuments that attracted the greatest investment on the part of the Egyptians in terms of <coughs> durable materials. They built tombs, they also built temples of stone, um, materials which are likely to last, um, and they also... Uh, your average Egyptian, or certainly your average elite Egyptian, would have invested a great proportion of their wealth into the things that they were going to put into the tomb. So where those things survive, they tend to be rather wonderful. And I could think of uh, a few gaps in the record. 
um, where it comes to royal tombs and gaps that at the moment can't easily be explained and might possibly mean that there are tombs still out there to be found. Um, we are fantastically lucky in Egyptology that for the almost 3,000 years of dynastic history, we know who was on the throne of the country more or less throughout that time. And when you think 3,000 years is an incredible length of time, from the beginning of the first dynasty down to the end of the 30th, the time of Alexander the Great, and that's half as long again as the distance in time between us and the birth of Christ, or you know, the, the, the change from um, BCE to CE. Um, it's a fabulously long period of time during which Egyptian civilization and culture was incredibly consistent. There are, of course, changes detectable within that time, but it, all the essentials, all the markers of dynastic Egyptian civilization, hieroglyphs, the worship of a, um, a fairly fixed set of gods, <coughs> architectural styles, artistic styles, those are consistent throughout that time. Um, and for most of that time, again, it's not always the case, but for most of that time, there was one person on the throne of that particular chunk of territory in Northeast Africa. And we know who that person was with a fairly decent degree of certainty throughout, for various reasons. Even more fortunately, we have identified in the archaeological record the tombs of most of those individuals, and that's why we can see gaps. So this period on the screen here, 4th, 5th and 6th dynasties, this collectively is the period that Egyptologists call the Old Kingdom. This is the time during which uh, the pyramids were built. So if you, uh, if you cast your eyes to the top of the slide, the name of the second king there, Khufu, also known by his Greek name Cheops, was the builder of the Great Pyramid um, at Giza. Um, two reigns down, Kaifra built the second pyramid, and one reign after that, Menkara built the third. So those are the builders of the pyramids at Giza, the famous pyramids. Um, and as you can see, um, we know where the tombs of all these individuals were. Um, I've highlighted, though, in red, the gaps, where there are individuals whose tombs we are not aware of. And there are only two in this entire period. And towards the end, in the sixth dynasty, Uzakara and Nefakara. And their absence from the record might be explained by the fact that they didn't reign for very long, perhaps didn't complete the construction of their monuments um, for one reason or another. And so, in fact, there wasn't much there in the first place to survive. At other periods in Egyptian history, things are quite different. There are times during which central government collapsed, um, and the, the power of the central authority, the power of the king, declined, relatively speaking. This meant uh, a limit on the access to resources, and essentially what it meant is that monumental tombs of the man at the top, of Pharaoh, um, became much smaller, perhaps built of less durable materials, less likely to be maintained after their lifetimes. These tended to be periods during which there was a lot of um, internal conflict within the royal administration. So you might find that one person builds a tomb and then immediately afterwards their successor dismantles it because it didn't like them very much. So that perhaps explains why in the 13th dynasty, the beginning of um, uh, a, sort of, a sort of dark age, um, it's a bit reductive to call it that, but that gives you an idea of the character of it. The 13th dynasty, beginning of the second intermediate period, that explains perhaps why we don't have tombs uh, so much, and why there's so much more red in my, my list here. Many of these kings will only have reigned for a couple of years, won't have had very grand tombs. Some of them may not even have existed at all. 
Um, in the case of several of these individuals, there are, in fact, as many as 60 named in the uh, 13th dynasty. Some of them may, may never have existed. And the records that we have of them may have been uh, the result of misunderstandings of evidence, that kind of thing. But there are periods um, which are well-attested, periods of um, uh, relative uh, strength in the empire, centralization, a strong pharaoh, able to build, um, able to build on a grand scale, um, periods during which we know uh, where the tombs were, um, and yet there are still gaps, conspicuous gaps. So this is the period we call the New Kingdom, period of the 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties. And as you can see, in the 18th dynasty, one of the best represented in the archaeological uh, and textual record, the first two kings of the dynasties' tombs are unknown, and then there's a little cluster towards the end of the 18th dynasty as well, um, where there's a sequence of kings whose tombs are also unknown. We're going to focus on those in a little bit. So, um, taking the list for the whole of the 30th, uh, 30 dynasties um, of uh, pharaonic history and adding the Ptolemaic at the end as well, the time during which uh, Egypt was ruled by um, initially Alexander the Great and then one of his successors, Ptolemy, one of his generals who founded a, a, a line, a dynasty of his own. Taking all of that, there are these gaps and that uh, was the basis for um, the outline of the book. And I also knew that in the case of the half or dozen or so stories that I wanted to concentrate on, there would be stories of ancient people, great stories of, uh, of who these people were, their life and times, um, how it came to be that you know, they, were, they were on the throne, um, the stories of where they might have been buried, etc. Um, I knew that there were going to be possible locations. I knew that in each case we could say something about roughly where the tombs might have been. The royal cemetery in Egypt tends to be stationary for a few reigns and then move a little bit. So uh, you'll remember in the time of the fourth dynasty, a succession of pharaohs built their pyramids at the same place in Giza. A little while after that, the royal cemetery moved, not very far, a little way to the south, to a site we call Abu Sia. Um, it moved around that region for a bit, but by the time of the New Kingdom, the 18th dynasty, it transferred a few hundred kilometers away to the Valley of the Kings and stayed there for a while. So for each of these different individuals and different periods, I could say, well, you know, Old Kingdom, likelihood is they'll be somewhere in the area of the ancient capital city of Memphis. Um, New Kingdom pharaohs, most probably, they'll be in the Valley of the Kings. We know that that's where people were being buried then. Equally, at the time of Alexander the Great and Cleopatra, um, the likelihood is, the capital city having shifted to the Mediterranean coast, the tombs should be sought at Alexandria. I also knew that, um, although as I was saying, you know, there's a remarkable consistency to uh, Egyptian culture throughout that time, there are variations um, so tomb design for Pharaoh and also everybody else evolved over time. So in the first three dynasties, somebody of the elite, including Pharaoh, would most probably have been buried uh, inside or beneath an enormous platform made of mud bricks, which we call a mastaba. Um, following this, non-royal individuals continued to be buried under these huge rectangular platforms, but the king started to be buried underneath a pyramid. By the time of the New Kingdom, things are very different. For the pharaohs, they began to cut their tombs into the rock, not beneath very, very visible monuments like enormous pyramids, huge flags saying, here be the king, but hidden away in the mountains deliberately. 
Equally, internally, um, the kinds of decoration, architecture, iconography, um, beliefs expressed in the decoration, etc., etc., those all change as well. So once you've got your eye in, you can identify an Old Kingdom scene, a Middle Kingdom scene, a New Kingdom scene, Ptolemaic scene, from the kind of people involved in, in the decoration or from the style. And I knew I'd be able to say something about, um, about these tombs that might be out there from that point of view. And finally, I also knew that there were stories of archaeologists who had looked for these tombs. And that, in some ways, was what gave me the confidence to write this book. I knew that there were colleagues of mine, historically, who had thought there was a good chance these tombs were out there to be found and had gone and looked for them. And their stories, how close they came, and in some cases, you know, there's questions about whether or not they might actually have found what they were looking for and not realised it. Um, I knew that those were going to be interesting stories as well, or at least I hoped they would be. Finally, there is something special about tombs. Tomb archaeology in uh, Egyptology, in some ways, is a little bit unfashionable. Um, when Egyptology got going in the first couple of decades of the 19th century, there was a great fascination with um, essentially how Egyptian things looked. They were thought to be very exotic, very colourful. Um, it was known, of course, as well, that there, there were masses of these things to be found in the ground. So Egyptologists, if we can call them that at this early stage, um, began going to Egypt to dig things up, and in many cases, bringing them away um, to museums where people could, could see them and themselves become very, very interested in, in ancient Egypt. And the focus was on tombs a, a lot of the time because they are um, the monuments which provide us with the most beautiful decoration and the most beautiful objects. They don't necessarily tell us very much about how people live day to day. And it took archaeology a few decades to realise that we've not been looking for people's houses and where people actually lived day to day and what they did in their lives. Archaeology has been a bit more focused on that kind of thing since. And tomb archaeology, like I say, has become slightly old hat. But I think we need to get over this um, because it is tombs, as I said earlier, that, uh, in which the ancients themselves invested the most. Um, and I don't think we should be embarrassed or ashamed about the fact that, you know, if they contain wonderful things, to coin a phrase, uh, then we shouldn't be, you know, interested in seeing those. More than that, tombs were intended to be uh, monuments which were sealed and then stayed that way for eternity. When they, when they were preserved, and that, happened, that happens very, very, very rarely, but when they were preserved intact... Um, it gives us a fabulous window into, uh, you know, uh, uh, the intentions of the ancients. And it's not just about having the things themselves, it's about the placement and the arrangement. So this photograph um, I had in mind, I'm not sure how well you can see this really, but um, I had this in mind for much of the time when I was writing this book. It's a photograph taken by Howard Carter's photographer, Harry Burton, looking down the entrance passageway into the antechamber in the tomb of Tutankhamun. They fitted an iron gate by this point for security. This is very, very early on in the process. They fitted an iron gate, and you can just about see beyond what Carter saw when he first made an opening in the sealed doorway leading into the antechamber. And not necessarily, uh, you know, the most fabulous objects in the tomb, but what he was seeing was not only objects which individually are wonderful, 
But it, it's the assemblage of them all together. And the fact for me, a, a large part of this, is the fact that they were all exactly in place, more or less, as they had been left um, three and a half thousand years ago when the priests last sealed up the tomb. And I always think to myself, when I look at these objects now in museum cases, that thank goodness you have, we have photographs like this one, because without this, the objects are totally out of context. They're, they're out of their, their archaeological context. And we've lost something of the attention of the ancients in, in doing that. Of course, Carter had no choice. He couldn't leave them where they were. Couldn't have, he couldn't have left them. Um, they have to be kept in uh, museum conditions now. There's, there's nothing we can do. But I, I think we should always bear in mind the, the placement. This is, this is what the, the ancients intended. And it is true that even now, uh, even though nothing as spectacular as the tomb of Tutankhamun has been found since, um, since Carter made his discovery, um, intact tombs do get found from time to time. And even though those individual objects in other tombs might not be so spectacular, um, again, the arrangement, the placement, I think, is almost kind of moving. It, it helps, I think, bring us closer to the, to the Egyptians. So this is a, 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 the burial of a much lower status individual from the end of the first intermediate period, uh, beginning of the Middle Kingdom, um, about five or six centuries prior to um, Tutankhamun's time. And this is a, a fairly simple burial um, at the bottom of a shaft um, at, a, at a site, in a tomb at a site called Deral Basha in Middle Egypt, a little way to the north. Um, we have a, a box coffin. Um, you can see the box coffin, I hope rectangular shape, typical of this period. Not a very elaborate set of burial equipment, but you can see some of what we call tomb models on top of the coffin. These are little models of people doing daily life kinds of things. So there's a group here making bread. Uh, there's another group here involved in um, making pots. There's a statue at the right of the coffin on the floor, placed next to it, representing the tomb owner, ready to make his journey to the next life. And then my favorite thing, just to the left of the tomb model in the foreground, a pair of sandals. Essential equipment if you're going to leave your coffin and go wandering off into the afterlife in eternity. If you're going to do that, you're going to have to have a good pair of shoes. And these are probably the best pair of shoes this guy ever had. As I said, investment in the afterlife, very important. Um, discoveries are even being made in the Valley of the Kings, in fact. So this is a few years ago now. This is 2006 this was discovered. Um, uh, this assemblage was found um, in a simple chamber at the bottom of a shaft, right in the centre of the Valley of the Kings, yards away from Tutankhamun's tomb. Um, it's now given the number KV-63, the 63rd tomb to be discovered in the Valley of the Kings. Uh, Tutankhamun's is 62. Um, it's not a tomb, in fact, in as much as it wasn't used to bury anybody. It was used to bury um, a cache of equipment associated with burial. So basically what you're looking at are some actually quite badly denuded uh, wooden coffins, um, seven of them I think altogether, um, and then some, some jars which were sealed and found to contain uh, natron salts. The salts are used to dry out the, de the dead body as part of the mummification process and purify it. And the coffins didn't contain bodies but other things associated with the mummification process. So this seems to be a cache of equipment um, used in the mummification of somebody. And in fact, we can tell from the, uh, from the style of the coffins in particular that these things date to approximately the time of Tutankhamun, and actually these may have been the things that were used for his mummification. The reason these were kept, of course, is because 
the body of a, of a king and the mummification process is such a sacred and important thing that even the objects you use, you have to put them into, into a tomb of their own like this. So, you know, not a, again, not as fabulous a hoard of treasure, but seeing these things all together, and this deposit is intact. The termites, unfortunately, had got at the coffins, which is why they're in such a bad way. But, but no human being had seen this uh, until the archaeologists uh, went in there for the first time in 2006, since the late 18th dynasty. Um, I was lucky enough to see this myself just before uh, things were moved. Everything has now had to be removed from the tomb and conserved. Um, but it was perhaps the single most exciting moment um, I've ever had in, in Egypt. It was a bit like meeting a famous person, which is a weird thing to say when you're looking at a, a sort of a pile of wood and some jars. But um, it was a bit like meeting ancient Egypt, somebody I'd thought about a lot and really admired and really liked, but never thought I'd meet in person. And I didn't want to go close. Uh, and a, a colleague of mine who was part of the team just said, well, you can go up if you like. I was too shy if you like, to go and meet ancient Egypt. And this is what I have in mind, again, when I'm thinking about, you know, the kinds of tombs that we might find. So whose tombs are we looking for in this book? Well, first of all, we're looking for Imhotep. This is a photograph of Imhotep here, uh, as you can see. Um, not the Hollywood bad guy, the real historical uh, individual. Um, actually, there's an important point uh, here because Imhotep was certainly, certainly was a real historical individual. Um, he's come to be known as the architect of the Step Pyramid um, and therefore the, the designer, the creator of the first pyramid, Step Pyramid of, of Pharaoh Djoser, uh, and also perhaps one of the earliest, if not the earliest, monumental stone building uh, anywhere in the world. We can't, with any certainty, prove that he was the mastermind behind that, but that he'd come to, to be known as that. Um, and, and who's to say? Certainly, he was a very high-ranking individual um, of, of unprecedented status and closeness to the king during his lifetime. But more importantly, the reason we remember him and the reason we know about him now is because he was, he was remembered initially as a kind of folk hero in the, in the decades and centuries after his lifetime, and then ultimately thousands of years after his lifetime, uh, revered as a god. Um, and so there's a kind of duality to his story in that we are looking for a tomb of a real human being who would have been buried in a monumental monument, a tomb, probably at Saqqara, probably close to his pharaoh and to the pyramid we think he might have designed. Um, but he also kind of has a second, has a kind of afterlife, if you like, um, as, a, as I say, as a folk hero and a god. And in some ways, the fact that it's his name which is taken for the Hollywood bad guy is, is a part of that afterlife. For the Egyptians, having your name be remembered is an important way in which um, you can sort of live eternally. So even if um, Imhotep wouldn't have been delighted about this, um, the fact that we still know his name is probably no bad thing. Um, we, uh, we will be looking a little, a little bit at um, Amhotep I, um, maybe not so famous a name, um, but he was the second king of the 18th dynasty, second king of uh, the New Kingdom, therefore, and the king of that era, more than any other who was revered by the Egyptians themselves, particularly the builders of the tombs in the Valley of the Kings and elsewhere in that area. For this reason, he crops up as a god in their tombs, we see him here in, uh, in the tomb uh, of an individual at Deir el-Medina as a god alongside other gods being, being worshipped. 
So he achieved this incredibly elevated status not very long after his lifetime, and yet his own tomb is not identified yet. It must have been a place that was, was highly revered, and we know it was intact um, still, so papyrus documents which record tomb inspections tell us, um, towards the end of that period, towards the end of the 20th dynasty, but we don't know where it was now. Um, so there's something, um, there's something to be talked about there. Akhenaten and Nefertiti, uh, in some ways, is the, the great story of the later 18th dynasty. Akhenaten, a great heretic pharaoh, um, undid many of the traditional uh, ways of doing things in, in ancient Egypt. So he proscribes the worship of the traditional pantheon of gods in favour of, um, of just one, the Aten, um, moved the capital city, etc., etc. And his wife, Nefertiti, his great royal wife, Nefertiti, um, thanks to this bust um, discovered at their capital city and now in Berlin, um, is, is one of the great icons um, of certainly female power, but in, in general, one of the great icons of the ancient world. We'll talk a bit more about them in just a second. An individual named Herihor is the subject of uh, the fourth chapter of the book. He was a um, military commander who took on the role of chief priest of Ammon, and in that role, came to rule the whole of the south of Egypt as a rival to Pharaoh, who by this point was based in the north and whose power was confined only to that northern region. And he didn't quite become Pharaoh, but effectively he reached that level. He was Pharaoh in all but name, and that's why we see him in Pharaoh's position in uh, iconography like this. This is Harry Hall with his name and his title written inside a cartouche, the name ring that encloses the name of kings, making offerings directly to the god Ammon. That's the prerogative of the king. It's um, something which only the king can do normally. And Harry Hall took this on. He was also the person, it seems, who was responsible for reburying the pharaohs of the new kingdom at the end of that period when the security of the tombs couldn't be guaranteed anymore. And we know that their bodies were all taken out of their tombs and secretly hidden away. He was the person, it seems, uh, in part, who was responsible for this. And it has been suggested um, that along with um, ensuring that the, the bodies and the coffins were all kept secure and that the, the, uh, they could be placed in, in secret, he was also nabbing a bit of the, um, the treasure for himself. And the reason we've found, well, there's been almost no evidence discovered for his burial at all, and that is unusual. Even in the cases of tombs which are still missing, so to speak, usually little bits and bobs of burial equipment have, have emerged here and there. There's almost nothing of his which gives people the idea that maybe the tomb is intact. That's why nothing's emerged. It's all still there waiting. Um, the story of the, many of the first millennium pharaohs uh, is interesting. This is a time during which many of the tombs are missing, so to speak. It may be that we've been looking in the wrong place for them. Um, it's a confused period during which time we now know there was more than one pharaoh on the throne uh, at once in different parts of the country. For a long time, we thought they were all based in the Delta in the north, which is where um, the classical historian Manetho tells us they were based. Actually, now we realize that there were quite a lot of pharaohs elsewhere that Manetho probably had no knowledge of. Um, so we've been looking for the burials of these people in the north, when actually they probably should be looked for in the south, like the burial of this guy, Harsiasi. Um, this is his falcon-headed um, red granite sarcophagus, which was discovered um, in a temple precinct uh, just the other side of the river from Luxor. We don't have any of the tombs of the 26th dynasty. 
They must have been at Sais. We, we think they must have been at Sais. Sais has been excavated, maybe not as much as we uh, would like. Little scraps of evidence of the tombs have come to light, but nothing really substantial. They are still there somewhere. The tomb of Alexander the Great, or rather the tombs of Alexander the Great, have not yet been identified. All the evidence suggests that his body was brought to Egypt, um, probably in the um, couple of years or so after his death in Babylon. His body was brought to Egypt by Ptolemy, who had decided that um, he wanted Egypt for himself. And uh, he realised that um, if he was the person who took charge of the arrangements for burying Alexander, and if he was able to bury Alexander in Egypt, then that would um, secure the country for, for himself. Um, so Alexander was probably buried, first of all, in Memphis, so the sources tell us, and then moved to Alexandria once Alexandria was built. Um, it was not much more than just an idea in Alexander's time. And he was probably, again, the sources tell us, probably buried um, once in a tomb dedicated uh, just to him in Alexandria and then reburied in a mausoleum built for him and for his successors, Ptolemies. Um, so we may be looking for several tombs here. And finally, of course, um, Cleopatra, uh, who, again, the sources tell us, was buried in Alexandria, not in the group mausoleum that was built for the Ptolemies, um, but in a mausoleum of her own in which she was buried along with Mark Antony. Um, there are lots of reasons uh, for thinking that uh, the tomb is in Alexandria, in the Royal Palaces district, um, but there is a current archaeological project working that thinks it's some 30 or 40 kilometres away at another temple site, and that excavation project is ongoing, so there's, um, there's some sort of current interest there. So, just to focus briefly on uh, Akhenaten and Nefertiti, just to go into uh, a little bit more detail into one of these stories. Um, as I mentioned, um, uh, this is a period of, of heresy. Akhenaten ruled for about 16 years, as far as we know, maybe a little bit more, but um, certainly at least 16 years. Um, and one of the sort of headlines of, of his reign is the, um, the forbidding of the worship of the traditional pantheon of gods in favour of one, um, the sun god, and specifically um, a manifestation of the sun god called the Aten, who appears as a sun disk, which you see at the top of the image here, with, with its rays descending um, down onto the king and queen, and sometimes um, some of their daughters as well, um, uh, offering them life and other, um, other sort of great beneficences. Um, his reign comes in towards the end of the 18th dynasty. He was actually crowned um, as Amenhotep IV, um, the name meaning something like Amun, Amun, the god Amun, is satisfied. But once the worship of the god Amun, um, the preeminent god of the Egyptians at this point, um, was forbidden, of course, he had to change the, the name and he became Aten Aten, effective for the Aten. Uh, and following him, uh, we have a few kings. The order is not entirely clear. The identity of the individuals is not entirely clear. Um, but there's a sort of brief uh, kind of Artanist, Akhenaten heresy interlude before the old ways are restored during, in fact, the reign of Tutankhamun. Um, Akhenaten is, um, is depicted in a very unusual way. Uh, he, uh, along with uh, many other aspects of his revolution, um, 
turned the way of depicting himself and other human beings in two and three dimensions on its head. Um, so in, it, statuary in particular from the early part of his reign shows him with this very elongated face and uh, although the, it's only the upper part of the body that's preserved in this case, this is a statue in the Luxor Museum, incidentally found at Karnak. Comes from actually from before the break. Um, this is from the, the early part of his reign while he's still Amenhotep. Um, he has these very bulbous hips as well. Um, people have suggested that this might even reflect some sort of illness that he was suffering from. But I think more likely it's just a, a way of getting away from the rigid conventions um, of the earlier art. And Nefertiti, of course, is, is one of the great icons. Um, we think that maybe this uh, idea of smashing the artistic conventions was to do with bringing about a greater naturalism and realism in art. And that's perhaps what resulted um, in this absolutely sensational depiction of Nefertiti on, on the left here. A very realistic looking, she's a very striking, high cheekboned, sort of powerful looking individual. That is only one, uh, the most famous of course, um, image of her. There are many, um, and many others uh, which have been found which are in, in many ways equally striking. This, uh, this is another one which is in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Um, so the, the dramatic changes crop up early on in the reign in, in year four, four or five. This is when he changes his name. Um, he also founded this brand new capital city from scratch, uh, which he called Akhet Aten, Akhet Aten, the horizon of the Aten, um, at the modern site, or the site we now call Tel El Amarna. Uh, it is in, uh, it's in Middle Egypt. Um, on um, I, an amazing... Uh, natural landscape, uh, a, a very broad, flat expanse of plain with an arc of cliffs um, to the east. So this is the plain on which uh, Archonauten built his city. And he did this very clearly and deliberately and tells us so in a series of inscriptions which he had cut into the rock at a series of strategic points in a ring around this new territory. And as part of that, he tells us about um, the city he's going to build. And he says specifically, let a tomb be made for me in the eastern mountain of Akat Aten. Let my burial be made in it, in the millions of jubilees which the Aten, my father, has decreed for me. Let the burial of the great king's wife Nefertiti be made in it, in the millions of years which the Aten, my father, decreed for her. Let the burial of the king's daughter Mary Aten be made in it in these millions of years bit long-winded maybe, but you get the impression uh, he built himself a tomb and his wife and his daughter were going to be buried in it too. Um, this is, uh, this is um, Amarna, a typical sort of Nile Valley satellite image. The, um, the dark area to the left um, is the cultivated land. This is the green fields uh, and the lighter colours to the right. This is the, the desert, of course, um, and that arc of the cliffs separates the low flat plain from the high desert uh, mountains and wadis. Um, it was virgin ground, and Akhenaten tells us that was very important. He wanted a site that had never been built on before. Um, and also, if you're standing in the right place at the right time, um, the sun, his great god, can be seen to be rising in the mountains to the east above the city. If you're standing in the right place in the one of Akhenaten's temples, this is the small Aten temple, you can see it rising in exactly the right spot. There is a break in the cliffs, incidentally, as you can see here. Uh, and again, if you're in the right place, the sun is seen to rise in exactly that point. And the Egyptian hieroglyph for horizon is a sun disk 
rising up in between two peaks. So it's exactly the perfect place for, for the horizon of the atom. That wadi, uh, that um, natural break in the cliffs, leads out into a Valley of the Kings style valley, wadi, uh, and it is here that we know Akhenaten cut that tomb that he was telling us about. Um, it came to light sometime in the last decade or so of the 19th century, not discovered by archaeologists, but discovered by um, locals um, who kept it quiet, it seems, for a period of time we, we, we can't be sure of, um, in order probably that they could slowly distribute things they'd found uh, in it onto the antiquities market. They were rumbled eventually and it came to light, as I say, in about 1890. It is very much a tomb in keeping with Valley of the King's tombs. It's not in the same place, um, but it is a deep, uh, very large corridor cut uh, deep into the bedrock, terminating in um, a burial chamber, as you'd expect, with two side corridors leading off it. We assume these are, or were at least originally intended, to be sort of separate branches, one for Nefertiti, one for Merrick Atten, exactly as he told us he intended. But something seems to have gone wrong. There was a change of plan. The decoration in the tomb is, generally speaking, not in very good condition. But this scene here shows, uh, I'm not sure how well you can see this, but here is uh, an individual, the face is missing, but with arms raised like this, and a series of individuals behind, this is, this is Akhenaten, this is Nefertiti, two of their daughters all raising their hands up like that. That's the mourning pose. And there is another individual here inside this shrine, which means that that person has died. And they're all named, and the person who has died is named as Mekit Aten, who was Akhenaten's second daughter. Not in the plan, this. She was not uh, intended to die, probably as early as this, and not intended to be buried in the tomb. There seems to have been another change of plan as well, and this uh, decoration uh, comes from the burial chamber, the main burial chamber of the tomb, the, the burial chamber we assume was intended originally for Akhenaten. It's a similar scene. Um, be no use me showing you photo a photograph because you wouldn't see anything. This is where epigraphy is so valuable. Um, Professor Geoffrey Martin spent a very, very long time at this wall um, trying to understand the lines uh, and reconstruct what was still on the wall. It's basically the same scene um, with Akhenaten underneath, uh, you might be able to make out the sun disk, Nefertiti behind him, and an individual in a shrine at the end, um, identifiable as a queen. And this can only be, uh, we think, one individual. And I will reveal who that is in a second. Akhenaten himself died in his 16th year, as far as we can tell. Um, inside that tomb, smashed, uh, we were found smashed uh, his sarcophagus. And this has now been reassembled. Um, the sort of lighter, more colourful areas are uh, restoration. The darker grey-brown areas are the original stone. So you can see that not much of it is left, but there's enough there for us to be clear that this is Akhenaten's sarcophagus. Doesn't mean to say he was buried in the tomb. The sarcophagus probably came in prior to burial as part of the construction. Um, but it, it does suggest that certainly they got a long way down the line um, uh, in terms of thinking that um, he was going to be buried there. So you might think that would be the end of the story. Where was Akhenaten buried? Well, he was buried in the tomb, like he said he was going to be. But in 1908, 
the 55th tomb in the Valley of the Kings was discovered. Um, relatively speaking, it was a simple burial, um, absolutely choked full of debris, as you can see here in this photograph. Um, descending passageway, single chamber at the bottom, and an absolute mess of material. Um, but enough in there for us to see quite clearly, the excavators to see very, very clearly and very quickly, um, that there was the remains of a, a very large, gilded, golden, wooden shrine with the names of an Amarna queen, who you might just about be able to make out here um, on this panel. That's her eye there. Um, this is Akhenaten's mother, Queen T. And in fact, it's almost certainly T in that scene in the burial chamber at Amarna too. She's the queen who is depicted as having died. So it seems that she was probably buried, contrary to the original plan, in Amarna, but then at least some of her stuff moved from Amarna to the Valley of the Kings. The Valley of the Kings. She was uh, a very important and powerful individual in her own right, uh, the great royal wife of Amenhotep III, Akhenaten's predecessor, um, depicted here alongside her husband in the single largest thing in the Egyptian museum. Goodness only knows what they're going to do with this uh, when uh, the new Grand Egyptian Museum opens. It's going nowhere, I should think. Um, there was also a body found in KV55 inside a very badly decayed coffin, which you might just about be able to make out here in the excavation photograph. It's been reconstructed and is now on display in the Egyptian Museum. And this is where I want you to think back to the start of the lecture when we were looking at those little chevron-shaped inlays which have just turned up in the Valley of the Kings. They are exactly the same as the chevron-shaped inlays here on the KV55 coffin. Um, we also see these in some of the coffins of Tutankhamun. So not only are these uh, probably precious uh, material inlays from a royal coffin, they're probably of the time um, of Akhenaten, Tutankhamun, something like that. Now, we originally, the excavators thought, because they'd found the name and the face of Queen T, that this was her coffin and the mummy that was inside it was also hers. Mysteriously, these jars were also in the tomb, human-headed canopic jars, which would have contained mummified internal organs. Uh, they seemed to depict a, a female. The inscriptions, though, were removed. So it's unclear who these belong to. But then, even more mysteriously, these bricks were found, magical bricks inscribed, placed quite carefully around the coffin. And the coffin normally of a pharaoh you would expect to be inside a sarcophagus in an elaborate burial chamber with lots of other equipment, just like in Tutankhamun's tomb. So to find a coffin just placed on the floor like this with a few bricks around it suggests that it was kind of deliberately done, but not in the, with the full sort of normal ceremony. These are very clearly bricks belonging to Akhenaten. Um, the other thing that was found in all of the debris in here were seals, so not part of the burial equipment as such, but essentially little sort of calling cards with the name of Tutankhamun on. So we assume that Tutankhamun is the person who was responsible for moving stuff from Amarna to the Valley of the Kings, probably including some of the burial equipment of T, his probable grandmother, um, and uh, also including material of Akhenaten, maybe even Akhenaten himself. So when it comes to this story, we've got a real kind of confused mess. As I say, up until 1908, we would have probably thought that all these individuals were buried in the royal tomb as intended at Amarna. KV55 threw this out. 
And in fact, over the course of the last few decades, we've begun to realize that there are rather more individuals involved here than we previously suspected. There is another king um, seen here in a, a rare uh, depiction um, from a tomb at Amarna, the tomb of Mary Ra the first, I think it is. Um, this individual is called Smenkar Ray, and he was married to Merit Aten, Arkhat Aten's uh, eldest daughter, named in an inscription which used to exist at the top right of this scene. Um, it was missing, disappeared by the time this drawing was made at the beginning of the 20th century, but it was still there in the middle of the 19th. So we know who this is. It's, it's this individual, Smenkar Ray. And confusing things further, um, three mummies, or one of the three mummies, discovered in the 35th tomb in the Valley of the Kings, uh, one of these cash tombs to which New Kingdom pharaoh's bodies were, uh, were taken to be hidden away when their security couldn't be guaranteed. One of these mysteriously unwrapped mummies, the one in the bottom right here, turns out to be the mummy of Queen T. Um, we can say that on the basis that a lock of hair from the mummy matches genetically or whatever, um, a lock of hair inside a box with her name on that was discovered in Tutankhamun's tomb. And the DNA analysis which has been done on uh, this mummy and others in the family also suggests uh, that uh, this is her. This is, uh, this is the hair and this is the box that that was found in. She's one of the most striking mummies um, anywhere uh, to have been found. You can go and see her in the Egyptian Museum now. Tutankhamun was in fact um, born with a different name, Tutankhaten. He was very much a part of the Amarna heresy, the Artanist heresy, um, but changed his name from the living image of the Aten to the living image of Amun, which signifies the transition back to the old ways. So people often think um, that, uh, you know, Tutankhamun, we know he came to the throne very young, he died fairly young, not long afterwards, not very much happened during his reign. Actually, his is the reign during which this great restoration takes place. But we know that some of his burial equipment even maybe conceals a part of this interesting story. The mummy bands, which were placed on his mummy inside the, the coffin, which you can see in the current touring exhibition, uh, are, in, are, are inscribed with his name on the, on the top. So you, when you go and look at these, you can look for uh, the name Tutankhamun, Nebkeperu Ra. Um, if you were able to look underneath, though, you would see another name, Ankeperu Ra, Meri Nefekeperu Ra. Um, I always uh, urge people to take notes at this point. Um, there's not going to be a test, but uh, anyway. Um, Ankeperu Ra, Meri Nefekeperu Ra, Nefeneferu Aten, uh, if you want the full uh, version. So we all always think of this as being Tutankhamun. Of course, this is the great image of this king that we know so well. Uh, and yet... His mummy bands appear originally to have been made for somebody else. And in fact, um, some would now suggest that even the death mask has been reworked. So the name that we see, and it only crops up once on the death mask, it's the coronation name of Tutankhamun, Nebkeperu Ra. But there are those who believe that it actually was, was, was re, um, uh, recut uh, over the top of an earlier existing name, and that's the same name, Ankeperu Ra, um, Meri Nefekeperu Ra. This name, by the way, is two parts to it. Ankeperu Ra is a coronation name, which we know was, um, was given to an individual called Nefeneferu Aten at the time they were, um, the time they were crowned pharaoh. Meri Nefekeperu Ra means beloved of Nefekeperu Ra, who is Akhenaten. 
So this Ankaparu ray is beloved of Akhenaten, and it's uh, Nepheneferu Aten, I hope you're keeping up, is, uh, is a name that was held by Nefertiti, beloved of Akhenaten. So almost certainly this pharaoh is Nefertiti having ascended to the throne. And this burial equipment, it seems, was probably originally hers and reused as Tutankhamun's. So this may in fact be Nefertiti's death mask, and this story is still unfolding. In any case, uh, we are still unaware of the burial places of these three individuals, at least, um, who, who reigned uh, as pharaohs of Egypt, um, albeit not for very long, and possibly even overlapping with one another. Um, but they are surely a part of this story of burial, reburial, um, heresy, return to the old ways. Uh, and many people, me included, believe that um, we still have not found all of their burial burials uh, that there is to be found and that they may yet be awaiting us in the Valley of the Kings. So I'm going to go just very quickly through um, uh, some possibilities. You may know that uh, as of um, a few years ago, uh, it was suggested that the tomb of Tutankhamun may yet conceal um, further chambers. Uh, so the yellow here indicates that there may be a continuation of the tomb into the rock and that the north wall of the tomb is a, a kind of dummy wall, giving people the impression that there is nothing more to be found when in fact it's anything but. Um, new analysis of the paintings on the walls by Nicholas Reeves, whose uh, idea this is, suggests that they have been redone so that uh, the figures we now think of as Tutankhamun were in fact originally Nefertiti. Um, and that uh, this wall, as I say, rather like the um, temporary partition walls separating the antechamber from the burial chamber and from other false walls elsewhere in the Valley of the Kings uh, conceals a continuation that will lead us to, if Nicholas Reeves' theory is to be followed, um, to the burial of, uh, one more time, Ankeperu Ray, Mary Nefkeperu Ray, Nefneferu Aten Nefertiti. Got it? Um, you may also know, and this is a question that I've had a lot in the last few years, that uh, a lot of radar work was done in the tomb of Tutankhamun to try and establish whether or not this is really true. Uh, and that concluded that, no, in fact, there probably wasn't anything to find. But in another twist to the story, just earlier this year, um, the team that's undertaken the third set of radar scans on the tomb revealed that while uh, there may not be anything directly behind the walls, there are anomalies, that's all we can say at the moment, possible cavities, underneath the surface, very, very close to the tomb of Tutankhamun. It may be that it's a continuation, it may be that it's another tomb, um, but uh, there is maybe something still there. So, uh, the story is to be continued. And with that, I will thank you. That was Chris Norton. His book, Searching for the Lost Tombs of Egypt, is available now, published by Thames and Hudson. We're not currently holding live events, but we are running a series of fortnightly virtual lectures on various different historical topics. You can find out more about them on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events. There you'll also find a wealth of other articles and podcasts on ancient Egypt. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for an episode on everything you wanted to know about the Babylonians. <laughs>